I don't have empirical data to back me up. This is just purely from what I've observed from being in the industry for almost 20 years now, which is women and people of color are not given the same opportunities to fail. Whether it's a female director or a minority writer on staff, if we don't get a voice or we don't hit it out of the park, the immediate thought is, oh, well, they don't get it because they're just too different and they're never going to get it. Whereas other people might be given different opportunities. And so the reason for a lot of us to not say anything isn't just like a lack of courage. I am comfortable and I am very fortunate that I can afford to walk away from it. And most feature writers who are women, who are people of color, don't have that luxury. And I felt like this was something the industry really needed to address because it's easy for studios to say diversity is important. We care about having diversity in our storytelling point of view. It's, it's so cheap and easy to say that, but they have to take a good hard look at what the landscape actually looks like and talk about what they're doing to address it. You're listening to Rock the Boat, a show about Asian Americans who challenge the status quo. Our past guests have included Andrew Yang, Michelle Fawn, Patrick Lee, and more. Our mission is to champion diversity in radio and elevate the voices of Asian Americans through storytelling. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Hey, listeners, welcome to Rock the Boat. So it's almost been two years since the release of Crazy Rich Asians. I remember watching the movie in theaters with a group of my good friends during a gold open screening. And I had this feeling of immense pride to see a cast that looked like me on the big screen. I also really loved the modern cinematography and the way the movie explored the cultural differences between Asian Americans and Southeast Asians underneath a layer of comedy. But what I loved most about the movie was that it portrayed Asian families in this very authentic way. And it also had the cultural dynamics that were unique to a lot of Asian families. It wasn't until I did some additional research and found out that the screenwriter for Crazy Rich Asians, Adele Lim, was actually born and raised in Malaysia, which explains why the movie got so many aspects of the Asian experience right. What's unique about Adele's background is that she built her career from writing television shows as opposed to feature films. She wrote for One Tree Hill, Life Unexpected, Rain, Starcrossed, Private Practice, and Lethal Weapon. In her early days, she also wrote for a show that I loved growing up, and that was Xena Warrior Princess. So a few months ago, I was able to get in touch with Adele for an interview for Rock the Boat, and I had a blast. We bonded over growing up overseas, and we even postulated about how we might have run into each other while we were in Vegas almost 20 years ago. Through my hilarious conversation with Adele, we uncover her experience working on Crazy Rich Asians, the difference between working in television and feature film, her parents' reaction to her pursuing a career in writing, and then her parents' reaction after watching Crazy Rich Asians. Adele also opens up about her decision to go public about leaving the sequel for Crazy Rich Asians due to a significant pay discrepancy. Her story really highlights how minorities still face a lot of struggles in Hollywood to this day. Just a quick note here, Adele drops a couple of F-bombs during this interview. All in good humor, of course. All right, on with the show. 
I'm Adele Lim, a screenwriter and TV writer producer. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Amazing. I think that the dying question that everybody has is like, what was it like working on the script for Crazy Rich Asians? And how has your life been different pre and post CRA? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, I don't know if it's so much that my life has changed that much. I feel like I'm a lot more out there. But, you know, I've been writing and producing for 17 years in one hour network drama television. And the experience of writing for Crazy Rich it's hard to put into words, which is kind of pathetic considering I'm supposed to be a writer. But it's this. I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 19. And I felt my whole my whole career that I was so lucky that I got to write for American television, which I grew up watching. But in that whole time, it never even truly occurred to me, I don't think, that I'd never written for a lead character that looked or sounded like me or had any similarities in how we grew up. And I thought that that was normal and acceptable and kind of the way things were. And even in new television projects that you'd, you know, develop and you'd sell. I think my, the last thing I developed for TV, I wrote it about a black female cop in Detroit because the thought was I could never sell um, a piece of development with an Asian lead. And this was all prior to Crazy Rich. And on Crazy Rich, the feeling of writing characters that sounded like my aunts and my mother and my father and my friends. There's truly nothing like it when you, it, it just sounds so sad that you didn't even know that you had this whole resource that you couldn't tap on, your own stories, your own history, that it never even occurred to you that you could tap on it. It was just, it was really freeing and joyful and I never want to go back. Yeah. Well, so we always like to start our stories with origin stories. A lot of our guests on, on the podcast are pretty well known. They've been in the media or you know, they have articles written about them, but very few people know about their upbringing and their childhood and like what made them who they are today. So I'd love to get a chance to kind of peer into what little Adele was like when she was growing up in Malaysia. <laughs> little Adele was very distracted. My Chinese name is in Hokkien, like Biyun. I think it means beautiful cloud. My parents used to make fun of me because I would walk around with my head in the clouds the whole time, just in my, my own world, just to go back. And from the beginning, I'm Chinese and my family is Chinese Malaysian, so they've been there for a long time. We have our own specific culture. It's called the Straits Chinese. And you see a little bit of it in Crazy Rich Asians, where there are these Chinese communities who've been there for so long. Some of them have lost a little bit of the language, um, but they basically combine their cultures with the local cultures. And there's a lot of like Anglophilia. <laughs> uh, we're all huge Anglophiles, or were. But in other ways, still a traditional Chinese family. My mother wanted nothing more than for me to major in finance and go to the London School of Economics. But I, I knew I wanted to write. I think I knew I wanted to write from the moment I could write. And, and I feel really lucky that way. I don't think a lot of people know exactly what it is they want to do. But the thought was, you can't make money writing. My parents sure. were in advertising, so they had this idea that I could be a copywriter, that one day mm -hmm. I might be able to pay my bills being a creative director of an ad agency. And so, you know, they signed off on me going to school in the States. Most Chinese kids from the Commonwealth, like, you know, Australia, 
Canada. Like you end up going to Canada, Australia, because the education system is the same. Boring, boring. But the American education system is amazing in comparison. I remember looking at a college prospectus and you could major in creative writing or tennis. (laughs) (laughs) Masters of pottery, you know, you can do that in an American university. (laughs) Anyway, so they signed off on me going to the States to Emerson College in Boston, which has sort of like a TV film specialty with the idea that I'd come back, I'd work in advertising or something like that. So I did a transfer program. So you do like two years in Malaysia to save your parents some money and then get to Boston. First of all, can we even talk about just moving from Malaysia where it's warm Mm -hmm. and it's tropical to Boston, where it's freezing. Like, how did you take that transition? Oh, sweet baby Jesus. Like, (laughs) okay. So that was the thing. When you're growing up overseas, you think one American city is like all American cities. So I grew up watching Beverly Hills 90210 thinking like, oh, it's that. And then in winter, you get to wear a fashionable fleece and beanie and you're good. And (laughs) Boston is not anything like that. No, I, we get there and my dorm room was right off the Charles River and I remember walking from my dorm to my class and where the cold enters your ears and freezes the middle of your brain thinking like I'm gonna die here I'm gonna die When you grew up overseas, you think of yourself as being sort of like the rural backwater kid, you know, like you watch American TV, American films, and you think all of America is like that. And where I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, you know, at like 15, 16, I'm driving around town, I'm partying with my friends, we're out all night. And then, you know, again, you get to Boston and and I think my younger sister ended up in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It was the beautiful place, but in the town where she lived, really, it seemed like the things that were open at night were the Walmart. And and bowling alleys and strip clubs. So, you know, those, you get a toaster, a stripper. And, You're like, set. You're great. Yeah. yeah what else? Is great. What Honestly, else could you possibly want? Let's all go to Fayetteville. <laughs> so you went to school in Boston. It's vastly different from what you thought America uh-huh. was. How did you start your career as a writer? Or did you even start off as a writer at first? Well, I knew I wanted to write, like I said, and I knew it wasn't going to be advertising. After I graduated, I thought I would go back to Malaysia. And at that point, that was the time where the entire Southeast Asian economy just collapsed. Mm-hmm. And fortuitously, like before that, I'd started dating a cute boy who lived upstairs, who was right. like this Boston white boy. And he was like, hey, listen, so after graduation, I'm going to drive up to LA and work in TV. And on the other side of it, I had my parents in Malaysia going like, oh, baby, don't worry. If there's no work, you can you can write for Christian programming in Malaysia. (laughs) (laughs) The contrast of those two things could not have been bigger. And I love my family so much, but I I knew I it was it, it was something I would regret for the rest of my life if I didn't try. So got in his Dodge and we drove to LA with three hundred dollars. I think that's and what we you, had. And you you drove from Boston to LA. How long did that take you? Not that long because we were that broke. We had this whole idea of, oh, you know, we're going to do that romantic cross country drive that young people do and stop at all these amazing towns and have the time of our lives. But when you realize you don't really have a ton of money to spend on like $30 night motels, you just kind of plow your way through. What did your parents think about this road trip? 
Oh, they were not for it. <laughs> they were annoyed, is putting it lightly, that I was not going back to Malaysia. They thought that this was ill-conceived, and also my parents are we're all we're all very close, and and they're also born again Christians, and so the thought that I was going to be just driving across the country with my boyfriend and living with him in Los Angeles really isn't the future they saw for me. And you proved them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you proved them wrong big time, right? Because you, you like settled down in LA. Well, tell me about like what did you do in LA to get your first writing gig? In LA, it was tough. It was tough for the first like four or five years, I want to say. I think I was really lucky in that I got my first writer assistant job when I was 21. And that's hard to do at any, any time in the last like a couple of decades. These jobs are hard to come by. And I remember my mother would get on the phone with me once a week with this like fateful sigh saying like, oh, the spark has gone from your voice, Adele. Over here, you could be working in like a good office job with um, paid vacation and I'm struggling as an assistant. The thought that, you know, you'd graduate from college and be someone's assistant, you know, for an Asian family isn't great. How did you take that? How did you take all of those comments? Well, you know, again, if you grew up with a traditional Chinese family, you are used to a wall of criticism. And I, and I don't want to say that, you know, mom, if you're listening, that, that it's meant as criticism. I feel like that's honestly the way they say hello and I love you. That is the thing that we all have to deal with, that voice of our parents, because we know it comes from love. I don't think most of the Asians and Asian Americans I've spoken to, like they, they understand that for the most part, it doesn't come from a place of wanting to tear you down. It comes from a place of them being concerned about your future. There's something that I kind of want to backtrack about uh, that we talked about before we started recording, that your perception of a lot of Asian Americans, especially the ones who grew up in the States, mm. having to go through a period of time where they just felt so unaccepted that all they wanted to do is fit in. And in order to fit yeah. in, they had to reject and negate the Asian side of themselves. Right. Yeah. We were just chatting about this before we officially started. And this isn't something I was aware of when I first got here. When you get here, you think all Asians are the same. Like, you know, you're just like me, you know. And I, and I realized that there were really key differences in how we grew up. So working in entertainment, I thought, well, there would be a lot more Asian Americans who are much more prominent in the field and was surprised and disappointed to find out that they really weren't. And I didn't spend too much time thinking about it, but as I got older and had got more experience, and I'm also involved in CAPE, the Coalition of Asian and Pacific Islanders in Entertainment, they have this great program called the Writers' Fellowship. And what it was set up to address was that a lot of Asian American writers who were coming into writers' rooms just weren't sticking. The retention rates were abysmal. They were just kind of like flaming out. And in a way where in every under, other industry, Asian Americans, you know, the work ethic is there, the determination is there. They were kind of getting along more and succeeding, whereas in entertainment, there really wasn't that same track record. And this is an overgeneralization and not all Asian Americans grew up the same way. But what I found in writers' rooms and, you know, through the fellowship is that growing up in Malaysia, I'm like everybody else and we feel like we're king of the hill. And over here, a lot of Asian Americans did not grow up feeling that way. They grew up feeling that being Asian was something to be ashamed of, that it was not as attractive, as desirable. They learned to really kind of like suppress their voice and identity. And there was this huge pressure to pass, to succeed in whatever field they were in, that you had to show that you were white as everybody else. And in entertainment, where that sort of puts you at a disadvantage is like, you are not going to out white a white person in a writer's room. You need to have a certain confidence 
in your voice and your ability to tell a story and your ability to hold a room. And a lot of Asian American writers who were coming into the industry really struggled with that. And that's why the New Writers Fellowship was there to sort of address that issue. So when you were a writer's assistant uh-huh. yeah. and there wasn't an organization like CAPE to to help you, how did you get your first big break? So writer's assistant jobs are not just publicly advertised because they're highly coveted because it's seen as a way into an industry where it's hard to get your break. I wasn't good at networking at all. I answered an ad in The Hollywood Reporter and I was really fortunate enough to get the position. And when I met with the showrunner, it was for Xena Warrior Princess. And he said that, you know, the show had a lot of fans. And so they didn't want to do the usual insight routes of, you know, finding a writer's assistant because they had had like an Uber fan the last time, which didn't work out. And I was like, great, I'm not an Uber fan. I like the show. And it really was a fantastic place to learn about the craft of writing because Whatever you think about Xena Warrior Princess, to to the outside world, it looks like, oh, it's women in metal bras fighting each other. But really, the storytelling was amazing. It was a strong female protagonist with a ton of agency. Her sidekick was a female. And the writers really cared about the story. And I remember one of my most important lessons I've learned about writing was this. I'd walk into the showrunner's room, and he's there at his computer typing away, and he's like crying. Because there was this guest character he created and who was recurring and now he had to kill her off and it was an emotional scene. And I remember thinking that's what it takes. Whatever your format is, whatever your stories are, you can never have contempt for your own material. You need to really feel it and believe in it because when you do, that's the only way the audience is going to feel it too. So since Xena Warrior Princess, I mean, you ended up working on a ton of other TV. Did you always want to stay in TV or had have you wanted to work on movies as well? Is that kind of a tr- typical career path for writers? I don't know about typical, but I would say that when I was starting out, most writers grew up wanting to write movies and then ended up in television. And I feel like I had the opposite kind of trajectory. Movies didn't hold that much water for me because in Malaysia, you know, movies took a long time getting there. I didn't get out to the movies a lot, but we got American television and I loved it. And I'm not that old. It's just that American TV back then took a long time to get to Malaysia. So I I feel like I covered the development of like all American television while in Malaysia. When we first, when we got our TV, one of the first shows I remember seeing was the Andy Griffith show in black and white. And then we got all like the, the weird like 80s TV shows like Manimal and the Whiz Kids, things you would not know. But again, it took a long time to get to Malaysia. And then by the time, just before I left for college, we were caught up to 90210. So I'd always loved American television. And when I had a chance to write for it, like that's the format I knew and I loved. And this is a detail that people outside the industry don't are, are not so familiar with. But in television, writers are king. We're the showrunners, and that means we run the show. We run everything. We cover pre-production, production, post-production, running the writers' rooms. And the pilot director is an important voice in setting the tone of the show. But after that, all the individual episodic directors, they come and they go, we hold the story and we control all of it. And it's great. Whereas in feature films, writers have very little agency. It's really the medium for directors and for producers. So as you're coming up through the industry, I'm hearing from all my feature writer friends of, you know, even the ones who are doing well, where they start making a bunch of money doing features or doing rewrites, but the things that they write never get shot. Or you write a thing and it'll be three or five years or never gets made. 
Whereas in TV, I would be writing some crazy, insane scene that I just pull out of my ass. And then the next day we're casting it. And then five days from then we're shooting it. So really like I, I, I have a, I have a huge TV writer's bias. I think in terms of putting in your 10,000 hours of breaking story and really seeing it from start to finish, it is like, to me, the equivalent of like doing tons and tons of like mini movies and being able to, to see all of that to fruition. Yeah. So I want to talk about those crazy scenes that you pull out of your ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, wh- where do you get your inspiration for them? Oh, who knows? <laughs> You know, it's it's not a bad question. It's a great question, but it, it's funny. I, I don't think there's a, there's like a special inspiration well, you know, that you you draw from. But I, I will say, the things that really excite me personally are things where it, it's like memories of friends or experiences, or sometimes it's not sort of connected to reality at all. Like sometimes you create this character and it takes on a life of its own. It becomes your creature, and your creature talks and and acts in, in all these unexpected ways that you don't even necessarily pre-programmed. When you think of a character in the abstract, when you're in the writer's room and you're like, oh, this character, he's like, you know, she's this kind of person. She's kind of out of control. She's got problems with her with her mother and is really into like K-pop. But then when you start writing her, she starts taking on a, a personality of her own and starts to become more distinct. And, you know, this is just, it, it's going to sound completely insane and grandiose, but, and I don't mean it to be that way. But writing and like specifically like television writing, there's it's almost like playing God because you create this whole world, you create these characters, and then it becomes a reality. Yeah, <laughs> like it just happens. Yeah, that's it, a heady experience. It, it is. It is, and I don't think I've ever you know gotten over it. Yeah. So how did it feel to go from being God to being on on like the on on film? I'm being on- not God. <laughs> Let me tell you, you ask like a hundred out of a hundred writers, none of you are going to tell, are going to tell you like they feel like God. Being a writer on, just to put that aside, is like, it's a lot of ass bleeding also. Like, you know, you, (laughs) you're stuck. It's terrible. You know, the, the schedules are so aggressive. You've got notes from like your production company, from the studio, from your network. Everybody's out to get you. But, you know, in, in its best, most pure, amazing form, you get to feel like God for a tiny sliver of the time. And that's totally worth it. But to get back to your question of how does it feel in features, I think I've been fortunate doesn't even begin to describe it. So I I told you, most feature writers complain about, ah, you write this thing, you sweat and you bleed over it for years and then Mm -hmm. never gets made. This one, um, I'd worked with John Chu, the director, before we had uh, pitched and sold a TV series. It didn't get picked up to series, but we had a great time working together. So for Crazy Rich, there was an existing script by Pete Corelli, but the, you know, the movie is really so specific and needs a really specific point of view. And so he asked me to read the book and I did. And I, and I've said this before in other interviews, but my family had been trying to get me to read the book for a long time. And I was like, I don't have time. It's called Crazy Rich Asians. What is it? But the first few pages, I realized like, holy crap, like this is not just Asians. It's like the Chinese, you know, the Chinese in Southeast Asia, the Chinese in Malaysia and Singapore. It's all the Malay, the Hokkien, the Cantonese, the curses, the food, the family dynamics, the church. This was this was completely my world. And a bunch of my relatives are in Singapore. Singapore used to be a state of Malaysia. Like I've spent a lot of time there. And culturally, we're very much the same. And so it, I, I felt like I had to do it. I, if I didn't do it, somebody else who didn't grow up in my culture was going to do it. 
and they were right. going to get it wrong. Right, right. So you were like, yeah. I want to portray my culture and basically your upbringing to the purest form possible. And I, I say this a lot to other people who've been on the podcast and other of my friends. I, I get really upset when I see documentaries about anything Chinese, but it's told from like, you know, white professors. And I'm like, oh, yes. this is strange. Because that's, yeah. you know, that's the experience over here being told by outsiders, by white people, like what your culture is or how you are. And especially with a property named Crazy Rich Asians, it's really easy to have a thing where the characters become like weird circus freaks, you know, oh, look, they're so foreign, they're so weird, they're so rich, we can't relate to them at all. But, you know, aren't they fucking funny? And that was the last thing I wanted. Um, and that's the last thing John Chu wanted. We wanted people to laugh and cry with the characters and not to laugh at them. Would you have done it if it was a different director other than John Chu? I don't know how that would have even happened. I wasn't on the feature landscape. When he came to me with this, he didn't know that I grew up in Malaysia and you know had that same culture. He had no idea. And other small cosmic coincidences, that large house that we have in the movie, Amma's house, that's a house in Malaysia, a large colonial bungalow called Carcosa. And that's where I got married. What? Yeah. I, I got married there like years and years ago. And then when John came to me and said, like, they've been location scouting. There's no house like that in Singapore. There is one in Malaysia, but it's been, it's completely dilapidated. It, it, it's this historic, historic house. It's one of our oldest colonial houses in Malaysia. And the queen would stay there when she came. But what had happened is after I got married, the place was neglected. It just went out of business. And what happens in Malaysia is like the jungle just takes it over. So the place was overrun by like bats and iguanas and so he showed me these pictures of th this terrible broken down house but with beautiful bones and I remember thinking like this looks like the place where I got married and we realized <laughs> it was the same place so I brought my wedding albums over to John's house and he was just looking at it going like holy shit like this is what the place could look like in its glory <laughs> how much of your own cultural experiences were you able to insert into the script you can't have a script and then just say like I'm going to make it culturally correct in this one scene and that one scene. It doesn't work that way. When I came on, I really sort of went through the whole thing. The the characters and their arcs and the emotional place where they came from really do have to track through the whole movie. There were some specific scenes where that were not in the book that we put in it. And between John and I, I think we came up with like the dumpling scene, the mahjong scene. And that's not to say that we were not um, doing the same work in every other scene. It's all there, but it's not as notable because Kevin Kwan did such an amazing job in the book of just like putting these stories together. I think those scenes get some attention because, you know, they 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 were just sort of like made from whole cloth. So what part of the book were you guys able to take creative liberties on? Kevin Kwan, the, the book's author, was incredibly generous. He had said to John, basically, that I wrote the book, you guys do the movie. And the book was already such a hit, and we wanted to stay true to that. The The part where we did have to make adjustments is that in, in the book, a lot of the fun of the book is expositional. So that just means one character is telling it to a different character. And you can't do that in, in movies. You know, you have to really put the drama on its feet. You have to play it out, not just have one character tell you about it. And mm. so instead of just describing the family and the character in the world, you want to see it. You want to really get into it. So whether it's the introduction of the cousins or describing the families, I mentioned the dumpling scene, but, you know, there, there were all these different family dynamics and grudges that were being talked about, but they weren't necessarily played out between the characters. So that's why we created the dumpling scene so 
you could get all the players in a room doing something, really sort of dramatizing all that familial tension that was going on. Yeah, I love that scene. I mean, the whole entire movie, I think there were definitely most of the moments were like, oh, yeah, that totally happens. Oh, yes. Well, (laughs) you know, I'm so glad to hear you say that because and this isn't this isn't to detract anything from the other voices on the movie, but because there are so few Asian American screenwriters and directors and, and movies, I mean, few doesn't begin to describe it. So with people who are not of the culture, it, it takes them a beat to see if they can trust you. I remember when John and I were like, we want to do this dumpling scene. Some of our partners in this said, well, I don't know. That sounds like, you know, maybe a thing you kind of made up for the movie. Do people actually do that? And we're like, we fucking a hundred thousand percent do that. (laughs) You know, like every, every Asian family I, I knew growing up at least. And again, the ones, the family I grew up with, that's the culture that we're writing about, you know, and John had grown up in a, in a, in a food family and many Asian Americans have, but there was always this thing of like making food together. It is a familial bonding thing. And it says so much about, you know, we don't make a big deal out of it. Like, you know, when, when I did things like that growing up, nobody says, oh, this is a tradition passed down from generations that we are now, but they don't talk about that. They talk about you're chopping the meat too big. (laughs) But in the movie, you get to sort of explore the more romantic side of that. And that's what we had Rachel do in that dumpling scene where she as an outsider can see this. She can say like, this is beautiful that this thing you're doing as a family all together, it's lovely. And Mm -hmm. then Eleanor like chimes in of just like, oh yeah, you're just seeing the nice romantic side of it. You don't understand like, you know, the sacrifice and what it truly means to grow up here or to be part Uh. of this family. What was your impression when you first saw the movie in full? I was stressed about it. Uh, Everybody would keep telling me, oh, you're so lucky. This is amazing. You get to write a movie. It's about your culture. But I just kept feeling like, oh, God, like we cannot fuck this up. If we fuck this up, they're not going to give us another movie for 25 years. Like if you thought about it for a second, there was so much uncertainty as to like how well this movie would do, how it would be received there. We hadn't done anything like it for 25 years since Joy Luck Club, like contemporary Asian Americans in a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And then when you saw it on screen for the first time. Oh my God. Oh my God. So we, I, John, again, is a very collaborative, open director and filmmaker. And so he had us in for like the early cuts of it, even even before it was like the big, shiny, slick thing that you, you've seen. But even then, I remember watching it and I was just like fucking flat out crying. And maybe that sounds like really narcissistic to be just like crying at something you wrote or it, like even the, and this could just be particular to me or, you know, there are a lot of like Asian daughter, Asian mother issues in general with mm-hmm. our community. And just the scene where like with Rachel and her mother, you know, and her mother talking about how proud she is of her. I'm going to cry, like, you know, talking about it. But it, it just, I think it, it, it isn't like, oh, I'm crying because the writing's so good. It just wasn't that at all. It was like, it was crying because it felt like a true thing I'd experienced and I knew all my friends had experienced. And now we were seeing it on a Hollywood screen. Like, who knew? <laughs> This is a dumb question. Like, have your parents seen it? I I hope they. I'm sure they've seen it. Yeah, of course. Yes. What did they think? Yeah. So listen, of all my talk of like how amazing TV is, like my mother, I think for the longest time felt like, do I even have a real job, a real career? And with Crazy Rich, I think that was really the first thing I'd worked on where she just connected with it right off the bat and felt so much for it and saw so much, you know, even from the book, but then to see it on the big screen, so much 
of our own family history reflected in it. And not, not that we, I was writing about our family history, but there are things that are very universal about those stories, and particularly if you came from that community. And it was everything for me that she got to go to the Malaysian premiere and bring all her sisters and her friends and her church group. It was the best. Was she in the theater being like, my daughter wrote this. This is my <laughs> daughter. She wrote this. Oh, no, no. The, the, the Chinese Malaysian style is like, you don't say it, you know, like your friends say it. And then you just <laughs> smile and just like shrug, like no big whoop. <laughs> but, you know, it made her it made her really happy. Now, in contrast, so to give you like my own personal history that nobody's asking for, but um, I'm not married anymore, but it, it's all great. It's all good. And I'm still very close to my former in-laws and I still call my mother-in-law mom. And so she's this white lady on the East Coast. And she first watched the movie on Martha's Vineyard among like a crowd of probably like almost all white Martha's Vineyard people. <laughs> and my name came up um, in the credits and she just like, from what her husband told me, like just jumped out. She's just like, my daughter-in-law wrote that. <laughs> so this is what happens when you have like a white mom. <laughs> well, I, so I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it or if you're comfortable talking about it, but recently all the headlines are around your departure for Crazy Rich Asians oh, yeah. too. Well, that was, you know, at this point, it's been a while ago. It, it it was a big decision to participate in that story. The reporters knew about it when it happened, which was way over a year ago, like a year and a half ago, maybe. And I didn't want to publicize it at all. Like everybody had such a warm, wonderful feeling uh, about the movie. And I, the last thing I want to do is detract from that. But then after, you know, pretty, a better part of a year went by, my decision to come forward was this. The story was going to come out anyway. And I was told that if I contributed to it, there was, you know, I had a better you chance. You could at of... least control the dialogue a bit. Exactly. I could, you know, come out with my side of it, you know, control the narrative a bit. And and I did feel strongly about it because coming from television where the landscape is just so much more diverse, you know, there are a lot more female writers, female showrunners and writers and showrunners of um, of color and that is not the case when you get to feature films. In feature films, the vast majority of working writers are white and male. And, and again, there isn't some Illuminati cabal trying to keep our voices out. It's just, it's a harder industry to break into. There are fewer opportunities and, and fewer projects. But I do think the storytelling suffers because of it. When you look at the TV landscape, we've been in the golden decade or two of television. You know, the shows are amazing. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think anyone can argue that the quality of writing is any lesser in TV than it is for film. In fact, as a TV writer, I'd be like, I'd be on the side of television. I mean, just look at all the shows. <laughs> But it, it was it was shocking, and I think part of going forward and going public with the with my story was this, which was the reason Crazy Rich was what it was, is because of the expertise and my experience that I brought into it, which I had honed in television, and I had a whole career there, and I had a certain quote there. But when I came over to features, business affairs at Warner Brothers had decided, you know what, we don't care about your previous experience or your previous quotes. We are going to just treat you like you have zero experience. And I felt that that was particularly an issue because I was a woman and a person of color and not, not to make it all about race or gender, but a white male writer would have been able to get his quota writing features. But someone like me would not have had that, that opportunity because right. we don't get tapped on to write the stories of white men, whereas white men get the opportunity to write stories about women and people of color all the time. And mm -hmm. all my experience had come up in TV, and I really felt that I know what I'm worth. 
and I know what my contributions are and I am comfortable and I am very fortunate that I can afford to walk away from it. And most feature writers who are women, who are people of color, don't have that luxury. And I felt like this was something the industry really needed to address because it's easy for studios to say diversity is important. We care about, you know, having diversity and in our storytelling point of view. It's it's so cheap and easy to say that, but they have to take a good hard look at what the landscape actually looks like and talk about what they're doing to address it. Yeah, it's 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 easy to pay lip service to anything. And I don't think it's unique to entertainment. No, it isn't. And what I, I think what I found when I went public with it was it was gratifying just to hear from all these people, men and women, people of color, who responded to me saying like they were going through the exact same struggle in their own industry and feeling like they could not say anything about it. Because there's always this feeling of you don't want to be the squeaky wheel. You don't want to be the problem child because it's it's very easy to get dismissed. And even now, coming forward with a story, it has its own risks. I know a lot of these guys within the industry, and in the back of their heads, they're thinking, well, maybe it worked out that way for her because her contributions really weren't that significant. Or, you know, she was only there because of optics, because she happens to have a vagina and is the right, like, you know, has the right cultural background. And and so it's fair that she gets paid less. And I'm like, fuck no. You know, I know who I am. I know I'm confident in my skill set. I know what I brought to it, and I know what I'm worth. But I also understand that for a lot of people, you don't want to be the person talking about it because it might affect your future chances of employment. It puts a target on your back. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's so courageous of you to put your foot down and say, despite the (laughs) fact that you had such an incredible experience with Crazy Rich Asians, the fact that you're, you're putting a stake in the ground and you're saying, no, this is not acceptable. And for publicizing the actual pay discrepancy, which I think was like, I looked at the numbers and I'm like, this is ridiculous. It was like a 10th of what they were offering the other screenwriter. So I really commend you for that. Oh, you're nice. First of all, it's like, I I don't think it's courage. If I didn't think I'd be able to get a next job, I would, I I would a hundred percent have chickened out and not been courageous. Like, I I don't know if it's, I also commend you for admitting that. I thought like, you know, fuck it. If I if I have to go back to TV, I could do it in a heartbeat. Like, fuck this. I, I think even coming from an Asian background to, to be that squeaky wheel. So often we don't raise our voices. We don't raise our voices. And, and there's no right or wrong way to deal with it on our end. Because the truth is this, whether it's an entertainment or not, I don't have empirical data to back me up. This is just purely from what I've observed from being in the industry for almost 20 years now which is women and people of color are not given the same opportunities to fail. Whether it's a female director or a minority writer on staff, if we don't get a voice or we don't hit it out of the park, the immediate thought is, oh, well, they don't get it because they're just too different and they're never going to get it. Whereas other people might be given different opportunities. And so the reason for a lot of us to not say anything isn't just like a lack of courage. I absolutely agree with you because there are studies that show Confidence is built through action yes, and understanding failures and learning from your failures. But if you don't even get the opportunity to perform those actions in order to fail and learn, then it's very difficult to even gain confidence. That's absolutely right. It's confidence and it's also acquiring your skill set. I had to write a lot of shitty, awful scripts. (laughs) (laughs) you know, before I was an acceptable writer who knew what the hell it is I was doing. And the only reason I got through those early years is because I was too stupid to know how bad I was. And (laughs) 
you're just kind of like plowing ahead regardless. And then you realize like, oh, oh, when you watch your episode and you're like, it's not the genius you thought it was. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I, I, have, I have a ways to go here. I mean, don't we all, like I listened to my first few podcasts and I'm like, ooh, okay. But yeah, there's, you know, like the Buddhist point of view of like, there are no mistakes. that <laughs> <laughs> They were all opportunities. They were all learning events in your life. Yeah. So you had a very nuanced approach to other people who were presented with a similar dilemma as you. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like what you're suggesting in it and or your advice is is that it's 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 very dependent on the person, right? So, you know, earlier you said that, hey, if I couldn't go back to TV, I might have just bit the bullet. A hundred percent, because we live in this world. We can pretend that we live in a more ideal world and when we don't. And so I don't want anybody to feel shamed into, you know, not taking a stand or taking a stand. It's it's really what how you feel about it and what you're willing to take on. I I will say that um, doing it has felt very freeing and, you know, it's made me feel like part of a larger community. And I feel like a larger community has rallied around it. And I don't regret it for a second. And I feel like what's interesting is that because of what you've done, it feels like there's a sense that you are spearheading a movement (laughs) in in pay discrepancies. Yeah. I think the difficulty is this, which is none of us want to be like the face of one key issue. We want to be known for our work. And I think it's true for women or people or, or anyone, you know, you don't want to be the forever face of like the victim of an unjust system, mm. whether it's sexual harassment or pay equity or discrimination. Most people don't want to be known as the face of that. We want to be able to just live our creative lives, our professional lives on the same playing field as everyone else is what it comes down to. But sometimes you have to be willing to take it on. I I don't know exactly where I fall in, in, in that balance. It was a big step for me to contribute to the story. And I was happy to do that. But when the story came out, it became a big thing. And there was a lot of media interest in it and people wanting to talk to me. And I just decided to stay silent about it right on the heels of that. I don't think it's until fairly recently and maybe in the last month or so where I've kind of started talking about it again. Because I think I can talk about it as an issue versus it being just the big topic of the moment. At that point, it felt that it wasn't specific to me, that it was important for other people to come out and tell their stories as well. And for people to sort of like hash it out in the public arena. I kind of want to pivot the conversation to Asians in media. Mm -hmm. So with your success in being a screenwriter for Crazy Rich Asians with the success of Crazy Rich Asians in the box office. What kind of trends are you seeing? What's the trajectory for Asians in Hollywood? So it's really been fantastic. But even just before Crazy Rich came out, I would hear a lot about television or film projects that were more Asian-centric. The decision on whether they would be greenlit or not was really going to depend on how well Crazy Rich did. And so just to pile on more pressure to that. And so when Crazy Rich came out of the gate like hot and it continued to do well, we were just so excited and so relieved. And we really did see a lot of projects being being picked up to series, being greenlit. It was wonderful. The concern at that point, my personal concern, was that after the initial sort of wave of it, that it would die down and then it would be back to business as normal. Because you have to remember when, when Joy Luck Club came out, you know, 25 years prior to that, People thought that this was going to change the landscape for Asian-American storytelling and Asian-American actors, and it didn't, truly. 
And I think a big part of that was it's not about one movie. It's not about Crazy Rich Asians as one movie changing the landscape. It's about Crazy Rich Asians being there. But on the heels of that, you do need like the the wave and the sea of talent that's just been waiting and biding their time. And it really is there. All these amazing writers, directors, talent, you know, with all these projects that were just kind of ready to go and were just waiting for the opportunity. Yeah, I think to your point, right, we are a career podcast. There are a lot of people who I know who work nine to five jobs in corporate America mm-hmm. who want to be writers yeah. or who want to pursue creative fields. So what advice do you have for them? Get into it, man. Just do it. It's being an actor in your life calling. It's totally cool if it is, but if it isn't, then then you owe it to yourself. <laughs> you owe it to yourself to try. And, and, and again, I'll bring up all the caveats, which is it's not an easy industry to break into. It's hard to find your footing, but oh my God, when you have found it, it's there's nothing else like it. All my Asian American friends who are in the industry with me, they're all, you know, they had to go to law school, like they passed the bar, they spent a couple of years in a firm before realizing like they were not happy, and it was not fulfilling this need that they had deep within them. And it doesn't come without risks. This is not an industry you get into if you want a stable career path. But that's the risk you take. Mm, that's awesome. I want to talk really quickly about your current project and ah. our projects. Yes. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're working with Disney on Raya the Dragon. Yes, so I've been with Disney. It's uh, it's the longest writing gig I've had like that was, you know, exclusively on one story and I'm starting to step back from it now to pursue other things, but I'm so excited about that. I never had a chance to write for another Asian in TV and suddenly, you know, I had two back-to-back projects in a row where I'm not just writing about Asians, specifically Southeast Asia. So with mm-hmm. Ryan and the Last Dragon, I can only speak to what has been publicized, which is it's set in a fantasy world and it's inspired by the cultures of Southeast Asia. And our protagonist is this kick-ass, bomb-ass teenage girl with a sword and And there's this relationship she has with this quirky Southeast Asian dragon, not like any dragon you've seen before, who's voiced by Aquafina. And when I first was in touch with Disney, I was not sure the producer, you know, she sort of loosely pitched me the area of the movie. And it was that same feeling I had when John Chu told me how crazy rich, this feeling of like, I have to do this because those are all my happy places. I grew up with Hong Kong kick-ass women, you know, and Michelle Yeoh, like taking it down left and right. And that's not something that American girls had growing up. That's why Wonder Mm -hmm. Woman was such a thing. And I have a daughter and I have a little son and I want them to be able to have a character like that in the Disney pantheon. You know, we have Mulan, which is awesome. And then I, you know, I want more. So what are you planning to do next? So I, this is also something I'm very so excited about. So Adele tells me that she started a project with several of her good friends who are also TV writers, and they were able to sell a screenplay to Lionsgate. The premise of the story is basically a hangover meets bridesmaids featuring a lot of hot Asian men. But due to COVID, this project hasn't been announced publicly yet. So I can't say too much about it on Rock the Boat. Amen. Amen. Okay. Awesome. Adele, it's been so amazing to have you on the podcast. We always ask this one signature question at the end of every single one of our interviews, and that is, how do you intend to rock the boat? How do I intend to rock the boat? I intend to rock the boat by depicting a ton of hot Asian men in amazing ways for the consumption of America and the world. Woo! I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Adele. It's been such a joy and pleasure to have you. Oh, it's a delight being here. Thank you. That was Adele Lim, film and television producer and writer. 
I had a ton of fun speaking with Adele. Her candor, her moxie, her passion for her craft, and her fearlessness is really what we need more of from Asian Americans, not just in media, but in all professions. What resonated with me from my conversation with Adele is that we all need to learn how to unapologetically be ourselves and find our own voices. Adele is going to continue to forge the path for other Asian Americans in media, and there's no doubt she'll continue to make waves while doing it. Thanks for tuning in to Rock the Boat. Raya the Dragon is expected to come out March 2021. John M. Chu, who is the director of Crazy Rich Asians, was supportive of Adele's decision to leave the sequel. You can read more about the piece via Vanity Fair in our show notes. For the month of May, Rock the Boat is hosting a mental health series with topics related to COVID-19. The series takes place every Friday, early evening Eastern Standard Time, and you are all welcome to join because it is online. We're looking to have small group discussions on really important topics and unpacking some of the myths of COVID-19. New events and groups will be released on a weekly basis, so check out the events link in our show notes and sign up. This is a reminder that Rock the Boat is a listener-funded podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to the podcast. There's a link to our donation page in the show notes as well. Or leave a review for us on iTunes and really help us spread the word. Subscribe to our newsletter on our website to get episode updates and invitations to our community events. This episode was written and edited by me, Lucia Liu. See you all next time. Bye.